I pray this finds you having a blessed morning as we get into God's Word in the book of James. And we are getting into a wonderful, fabulous passage this morning. Um, we've gotten away from all of the conversation uh, that James has had concerning favoritism. And now we're getting into a passage that is phenomenal. Um, one that throughout history, if you go back and you look at the history of the church, passages like this have brought a lot of consternation, uh, a lot of problems and conflict, and that is the idea of faith and works. Um, you'll have certain uh, church historians that um, if you go back and you look, they thought Paul was a liar. You know, uh, they thought James and Paul conflicted. Some thought James was a liar. Um, some was wanting to have what James says and his epistle taken out of the Bible. Some wanted what Paul said taken out of the Bible. Um, this idea of faith and works has been a journey, if you will, if you want to use that word, um, for centuries that people have been debating on. And um, I think what we can say is that, number one, James and Paul do not contradict each other. Um, James is not teaching any kind of false doctrine here and what he's getting ready to say. Um, and what James is doing is really laying out practical Christianity. All right? And what we'll do, we're just going to jump in. Um, you all know I don't I don't move very quickly. We, we can maybe be on one verse for the whole podcast. We may cover four, four or five verses. <clears throat> but we're going to start in James chapter 2, verse 14, because James is going to open up with two very important bold questions, and we're just going to dive in head first. So James chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? All right, so let's just hunker down here, and then if we have time, we're going to go into the next couple verses where James is going to use some examples and illustrations. Um to really try to show the practicality here. So the first question that James asks, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works, can such faith save him? All right. I want to make sure that this is very clear. James is not teaching a works-based salvation. All right? James is not teaching that you earn your salvation through works. That was the big problem that a lot of early church historians had was that they looked at passages like this and they said that James is a heretic, James is teaching false doctrine because James is teaching a works-based salvation. No, he's not. And that's what I want us to be able to kind of dive into. All right? I had a statement made one time before, and again, you all know I like to give credit where credit's due, but I cannot remember who's made this statement. 
But the way that they posed their statement was this. If you were to go into a court of law and you were to be put on trial as being a Christian, is there enough evidence in your life to prove that you're a Christian? And would you be found guilty of being a Christian? And I thought that was one of the most fascinating things. And the reason why I say that is because, again, (coughs) excuse me, if you're to go around and ask people today, are you a Christian? The majority of the people you talk to will tell you they're a Christian. And what I'm going to say, I'm just being, I'm just being honest. They are only a Christian based on morality. In their mind, they are a Christian based on the fact that they think they're a good person. That's really the gist of it. And so if you were to follow them around, <coughs> excuse me, if you were to follow them around, they say they're a Christian. But you would not find enough evidence to prove them guilty beyond a, a shadow of a doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt. What you might be able to do is to sit down and say, well, you know, they're nice. They, they, you know, they, they, they show some kindness to other people. You know, they don't cuss. You know, I didn't see them, you know, drinking or I didn't see them, you know, whatever. We, we go to those big things, you know. But the real question is, is was there enough evidence to prove that they were a Christ follower? And the reason why I think that is so important is because what it does is it gets back to the meat of what Jesus was saying. If you go back, and there's a lot of these verses that I think we avoid with everything we got. Jesus very specifically said, if you want to be my disciple... You must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. He didn't say, if you want to be a Christian, you know, just casually go to church as you see fit. Make sure that you make good moral choices. And just try to be the best version of you. No, he said, you must deny yourself. We could be here all day just on that. How many people that you know that call themselves Christians daily deny themselves? Deny their wants, deny their desires, deny their fleshliness in order to pursue Christ-likeness. Man, I don't know many. I know a few. There's there's some that are popping in my head right now that I know. See, because this is really what it's talking about. I'll, I'll, I'll make it maybe in this, this, this framework to where you can understand. What James is saying is you're a Christian when you're not around other people. You're a Christ follower when you're not around other people. All right, so I'm going to elaborate on that. If I just want to call myself a Christian, then what I'm going to usually do is I'm going to try to make good choices when I know people are watching. What James is really saying here is, 
If you're really a Christ follower, you're going to do all the things that need to be done when nobody else is watching. And oh, by the way, because you do all the stuff when nobody else is watching, you're going to automatically live it out when people are around you. I don't have to turn it on. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't have to try to find a way to, you know, put my Jesus coat on when other people are around. Even when nobody's around. I'm trying to be a Christ follower. See, James is not teaching in any way that works save you. What James is saying is this, being genuinely saved produces works. I'll say it in a different way. If you are truly a, a Christ follower, you can't help but let Jesus come out of you. If you are truly a Christ follower, you can't help but want to serve others. If you are truly a Christ follower, you can't help but want to be the hands and feet of Jesus daily. See, that's the difference. You don't pick and choose when you want to do it. You don't do it just when people are watching or when people are around. If you are a Christ follower, you can't help but have Jesus come out of you. Because see, when you go back to what Jesus said about being a disciple, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. When you begin to deny yourself and you let yourself be surrendered over to the Lordship of Jesus, that means that, that you, are, you are fully devoted to Him and all you want to do is serve Him, be surrendered to Him, and be devoted to Him and bring glory to Him. And what happens is He just uses you and, and you can't help but be used by Him. And you do it willingly. And that's why people can say, wow, look at that person. They love Jesus. Why? Because what they're doing is they are being Jesus to other people. And notice, they're not just being morally good. They're being Jesus. There's, there's a big difference in that. You say, well, what does that really look like? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to... We could sit here all day and, and jump into as many of the theological discussions that we want to, but I'm going to tell you, if you want to know what it means to be Christ-like, if you want to be able to say, Jeremiah, what does it look like to be a Christ follower? I'm going to sum it down into two specific things for you, and both of them are what Jesus was accused of and what Jesus himself said. Jesus said this, first and I came not to serve, I mean, I came not to be served, but to serve others. I came not to be served, but to serve others. So, one of Jesus' primary roles was to serve other people. And if you notice and you go through and you look in the gospel accounts, Jesus didn't pick and choose who he wanted to serve. Jesus didn't only serve the rich, wealthy, and those who could be able to give him something back in return. Jesus served the people that could never repay him. Remember, we talked about this. What is true and perfect religion? To serve the widow and the orphan. Or pure and undefiled religion, not perfect. Pure and undefiled religion is to serve widows and orphans. To serve those, we had that lesson, that podcast here not long ago. To serve those who can't do anything for you in return. That's exactly what Jesus did. He served other people rather than being served. And here's a second one. Luke 19.10. From the story of the wee little man Zacchaeus. 
Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. So if you want to figure out, am I being Christ-like? Do you daily serve everybody around you? Are you constantly thinking of others more than you think of yourself? And number two, is your primary goal to make Jesus known to everybody you come in contact with? That's how you know you're a Christ follower. Those are your priorities. Those are the things that you try to do every day. You're not trying to be morally good. Because see, here's the thing. If I am a Christ follower and I have surrendered my life to Him today in order to serve others, in order to make the gospel known, guess what? I'm guaranteed to make good moral decisions because I'm not leading and guiding myself. Jesus is. But if my goal today is just to make good moral decisions, Jesus is not leading you. Because being a Christian is not about making good moral choices. Being a Christian is about being Jesus to other people. And serving Jesus with everything you've got with your whole entire life. But we think if I can just make good moral decisions and that shows I'm a Christian, no. That's not what it boils down to. This is what one commentator said. His name is Lee. He said, It's only reasonable to realize that our profession of Christianity demands a test. That test is the production of works. Without works to demonstrate faith, our claim becomes false and we show our deception. So again, I used the example here not long ago. If I told you that I'm an astrophysicist, but yet I have no schooling, I don't work. I'm not able to tell you what an astrophysicist is or does, but I'm just walking around saying I'm an astrophysicist. There's not a person in the world who's going to believe me. But yet we have people walking around all day long saying that they are a Christian, and yet there's nothing in their life that shows it. But because we're scared to death about being offensive and saying, you know what, there is no evidence in your life that you're a Christ follower. Instead of doing that, instead of saying those things because we're scared to offend them, we just like, well, you know what? You love Jesus your way and I love Jesus my way. No, that's not how things work. You don't get to pick and choose how you love Jesus and you don't get to pick and choose how you want to serve Jesus. <coughs> you either do it the way he says or you don't. See, that's the problem. And what James is doing here is he, he's talking to these people. And, and understand this, it's still under the context of what we've been talking about with this idea of favoritism. Because if our goal is to just make sure that we notice those of status and we know those that look like us and we're uh, mainly focusing on people that uh, we feel comfortable with, listen, that's not being Christ-like. It's not being surrendered. That's not making sure that we serve all and make the gospel known to all. What we're doing is we're saying all of it's conditional. And what Lee is saying here is that, you know, if you want to walk around and say you're a Christ follower, there better be evidence for that. You know, that's, that's really what Jesus did throughout the gospels when he was talking to the Pharisees. It wasn't like he was just trying to pick a fight. He was looking at the Pharisees and he was telling, tell, listen, Nothing in your life's backing up what you say. He even goes so much to say to the to his disciples, do what the Pharisees say because they tell you the truth. But don't look at their lives as a model for it because they don't even do what they say. 
And see, one of the things that happens, and I'm going to be, and I think this is, this is, uh, I'll be preaching on it Sunday night. I kind of made the comment last night at prayer meeting. I said, I'm, I'm going to be preaching on the verse that, that more people know. The only verse that's probably known more than the one I'm preaching on is John 3.16. Most everybody, even if you've never gone to church, knows John 3.16. But I'll be preaching on the second most, if you want to say, well-known verse. And I'm going to tell you, it's Matthew 7, 1. And a lot of you are like, Matthew 7, 1, what's that? Judge not, lest you be judged. Everybody knows that. Unsaved people, you ain't supposed to judge me. That's what the Bible says. So they may not know that it's Matthew 7, 1. But they know that the Bible says, don't judge me. Well, you know what? Here's the problem. The Bible also tells us, and Jesus himself said this. A tree will be known by its fruit. And we're to look at that tree. And we're to say, your tree isn't producing fruit. Now, there's a difference in being judgmental and being a fruit inspector. I can be judgmental, which means I'm going to be critical, harsh, and ugly, and unkind. Yes, as a Christian, I am not to be critical I'm not to be harsh. I'm not to be judgmental and unkind. But I am to be a fruit inspector. It's the same difference as if I've got... I love um, flowers, especially roses. I love roses. And I've got some other... You know, I've got some peach trees here in the yard. I've I've planted me a, a lemon tree. I've planted some apple trees. You know, I don't have the fruit on them yet. But I do have some fruit on the, the peach trees. And so if, if I'm sitting here and I bring you over to my house and I tell you this is a banana tree and there are peaches hanging on it, you're going to look at me as if I'm either number one, ignorant, I'm playing a joke on you, or that I don't have a clue what I'm talking about. You're going to look at me and say, Jeremiah, I don't know what you're seeing, but I'm looking at this same exact tree. Are are you meaning this tree? Because the tree you're pointing at has peaches on it. No, it's a banana tree. No, I'm looking at it, and it has peaches on it. No, I'm telling you, I know it's a banana tree. How many people do you know that say I'm a Christian, but you see no fruit in their life? How many people walk around and tell you, I know that I'm saved. I know I'm a Christian. But when you're looking for the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, you're looking for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. How often do you see that? If you're looking for that fruit of the Spirit... And you're not seeing it on the tree. How in the world are you going to tell me that you are a Christian tree and you have no fruit on your tree? It's the same difference as me telling you this peach tree is a banana tree. You're looking at me and saying, Jeremiah, there is no way it's a banana tree. Why is it that we're scared to death to look at someone and say, listen, I'm sorry. I love you enough to tell you this. You're not saved. You can tell me you're a Christian all day long. There is not enough fruit in your life to show that. 
Jesus did it with the Pharisees. He said, you claim one thing, but your life shows another. You're a whitewashed tomb. Look beautiful, but inside it's dead bones. But we're so scared to death to look at someone and say, listen, there's no works in your life. You don't pass the Christian test. There's not enough evidence to prove you guilty of being a Christian. But what we want to do is we want to make sure that if somebody just comes to church and they, they look the part and they seem like they're morally good, that they're guaranteed to be saved. That's not the case. That's not the case at all. And see, I think that's one of the things that we need to go back to. What did Jesus say? Wide is the gate. Many's on it that leads to destruction. But narrow is the way. It's a one-lane road. It's a one-lane road and Jesus has already made the claim and the law and the statutes of this is what it means to have to drive on this one-lane road right here. If you want to drive on this one-lane road, here's the stipulations. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. It is my standard. It is my criteria. I'm the one who lays the law down. We don't get to pave a bike lane over here and say, you know, I know what Jesus says, but this is how I view the God's Word. Your opinion does not matter. As a matter of fact, you don't get an opinion. It's Jesus' way or no way. And He says, if you want to claim to be my follower, there must be fruit in your life to validate that. And if there's no fruit in your life, I'm not telling you you're not saved. God's Word is. Listen, I'm not trying to walk around like the spiritual police and I love to be able to claim who's saved and who's not. I don't. I try to give everybody the benefit of the doubt as much as I can. But when I'm sitting down and someone keeps telling me over and over that they're saved and they have no self-control whatsoever... And this is, and see, here's the problem. We've got to understand it's self-control in every area of our lives. It's self-control in your finances. It's self-control with your anger. It's self-control with your lust. It's self-control with your, your uh, uh, demeanor. It's self-control with the way that you treat other people. <clears throat> we just think it's self-control with lust and sex. That's it. I've just got to have self-control. That No. It's self-control with your tongue. We're going to talk about that in chapter 3 a little bit more. It's realizing that you can't say what you want to say all the time. You can't just go around being ugly and unkind and hurting people. One of the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness and another one is kindness. Gentleness is not weakness. But we look at it like that. It's like, well, I'm just going to tell you what I think about it. Well, you know what? You're going to show how stupid you are too. And you're going to walk around hurting people. And you're going to be doing more damage than good because you're going to do you. You're not showing self-control. And that's just one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit that so many people struggle with. And see, here's the thing. What we have to understand, it's not fruits, plural, of the Spirit. It is fruit, singular. You know why? 
Because every one of the fruit of the Spirit that is mentioned are all reliant upon the other. If you don't have self-control, you're not going to be gentle and kind and you're not going to show the love of Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Love, gentleness, kindness, self-control, those four right there intermingle. And we could go on and on about how the fruit of the Spirit is all reliant upon each other. And it's not just, well, I've got the love of Jesus in my life today, but you know, I may not have some gentleness. No. Gentleness and the love have to go together. So you don't get to pick and choose how you want your tree to look. All of the fruit of the Spirit must be on your tree. Not just some. And so when we're sitting down again looking at this, is there enough evidence in your life to make you be found guilty of being a Christian? If I were to go to five people, if I were to sit down and say, you know what? Give me the list of the five people who you're around the most. Whether it be at work, family, whatever it may be. And if I were to go interview those people right now, what would be the first things out of their mouth to describe you? Would the first thing out of their mouth be, well, I tell you, they are a solid Christ follower. Or would the first things out of their mouth be, oh, they're a good person. What would be the first things out of their mouth? Oh, they're just so funny. I'm not saying being funny is a bad quality. I'm not saying that somebody's saying you're a good person is negative. What I'm asking is this. What's the first thing out of their mouth? What's the first thing that they notice? Is the first thing out of their mouth that they know that you love Jesus and you're a Christ follower? Or is that even, if, if they were to give me, what's the, the first five things that come to your mind about so-and-so? Would you being a Christ follower be one of those five things? I've told people before, If I end up dying and I'm laying up there in a casket, I don't care if people come up and say, oh, he was a good husband. Oh, he was a good father. Oh, he was a good man. I want to live my life in such a way to where when I'm up there in that casket, the only thing people really realize is, man, that guy loved Jesus and he told people about him. That's the greatest testimony I can leave behind. If I die... The greatest thing that my kids could say about me is not that he was a good dad, but that I know my dad loved Jesus more than anybody else. That is the greatest thing that my children could say about me. The greatest thing my wife could say about me is not that he was a good husband and he loved me well and he, he protected me and he supported me. The greatest thing could be that I know that my wife could say is that I know my husband loved Jesus more than he loved me. And he led our family by modeling that. That's the greatest thing that my wife and my children could say about me. Why? Because the most important thing I can do in this life is be a Christ follower. And here's how I want to say it so that way we understand this. Jesus isn't part of my life. Jesus is my life. See, when I get saved, I don't make Jesus part of my life. When I get saved, Jesus is my life. 
And the difference between a Christian and a Christ follower is this. Christians make Jesus part of their life. Christ followers, Jesus is their life. Well, you're awful arrogant, Jeremiah, to say you're a Christ follower. Well, I hope there's enough evidence to prove that. I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm just telling you how I try to live. I hope that if you spend time around me, that I'm so on fire for Jesus, you get burned. I hope that when you're around me, that I, my love for Jesus and my desire to serve others and share the gospel so affects you that it either repels you and repulses you to run away from me or it causes you to sit down and say, man, I want to do that with you. I'm not trying to be arrogant and say I'm a Christ follower. I'm just trying to tell you that I believe there's enough evidence in my life to show that I'm a Christ follower. Do I do it right every day? Absolutely not. But what I also realize is I don't play games. I'm not just trying to run around and be morally good today. That's not my goal. My goal this morning when I got up and prayed was I said, Lord, my life is yours today. Use it how you see fit. Do with me as you see fit whatever that looks like today. And that's what I try to encourage others that are around me is that's what your goal should be. Your goal should not try to to get up and be the best version of you today. Your goal should get up and be, Lord, here I am. Whatever you want to do with me, do it. I'm your vessel. So are there enough evidences in your life to make you be found guilty of being a Christ follower? James goes on another step here. He says, what good is it if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? We've talked about that. He asked this next question. He said, can such faith save him? I want you to listen to what Burdick says here, a commentator. He says, faith without works cannot save. It takes faith that proves itself in the deeds it produces. James is not speaking of deeds performed to earn merit before God. Genuine faith is regeneration and therefore affects the believer's behavior. Here's what Burdick is saying. We are saved by grace through faith. Yes. Ephesians 2. We are saved by grace through faith. But that salvation is regeneration. You go from being, and it's transformation, because you go from being dead to alive. And it causes you to be different. You're no longer the same person. As, as Paul said in the, in the letter to the Corinthians, listen, the old ways, the old man is passing away. The new things, the new ways, the new man. See, there's there's got to be a differentiation there. And what happens is this. If I'm still living the same way that I lived before I got saved, the only difference is, is I'm claiming that I got saved. What difference is there in your life that shows that? See, when when it comes to being saved and, and true, genuine repentance and acceptance of lordship of Jesus, you better think differently, talk differently, act differently. You know... Every aspect of your life is different 
Why? Because Jesus is now controlling it. Jesus is now guiding your thoughts. So guess what? You're going to think differently. Jesus is guiding your eyes. You're going to see people differently. (coughs) You're going to see people with a purpose to serve them. You're going to see people that, man, i got to get the gospel to them. You're not going to see people and say, boy, they, they made some stupid decisions. They made their choices. That's the bed. Let them lay in it. No, I want to go help them get out of it. I want to go bring Jesus to them so that way they realize they have hope. They have answers. They have opportunity because Jesus can take care of the things that's going on in their life and free them from that. What James is really saying here is that you can't be just a Christian who verbalizes that they have faith. If you have genuine saving faith, it must and will show itself. I made the comment last night at prayer meeting as we was praying for some of our mission projects that are coming up. I said one of the biggest problems that we have is we believe evangelism, discipleship, and missions are three different types of classes that we need to teach and learn about. That's as unbiblical as anything I'll ever know. Evangelism, discipleship, and missions are all the exact same thing. And it's in the Great Commission. Jesus says, as you are daily going, go make disciples, teaching them. That's evangelism, discipleship, and missions. That's what it is. They're all three the same exact thing. The problem is, is we think evangelism is sharing the gospel. We think discipleship is sitting down with someone and sharing life with them. And we think missions is getting on a plane and going. No, they're all three the same exact thing. As you are daily going, make Jesus known, live life with people, go wherever he tells you to go and make disciples. See, it's the same exact thing. But we make it into like it's three separate little entities, and it's not. And what I was telling them was this. You may look at it and say, well, I don't want to get on a plane. Well, then open up your checkbook and send somebody. Be part of it. You may not be wanting to get on a plane and go, but you got enough money to be able to pay for somebody else to go. Do you realize that when you write that check and you send that person to go, you are as responsible for the souls that get saved as the person who shares the gospel? See, that's kingdom-mindedness. That's just saying, you know, I don't, I don't care how the gospel gets out. I just want to be part of it. If it means I got to write a check, if it means I got to get on a plane, if it means that I got to serve in this ministry, <clears throat> or I've got to be able to hand out cans of food, whatever it looks like, I just want to make Jesus known. See, when you are genuinely saved, you can't help but not do something. Kind of summarizing it here, the prophet Jeremiah had a tough time in Scripture. Even got to the point where he didn't even really want to preach much, but he said, the Word of God is like fire shut up in my bones. Some people say, you know, Jeremiah, you just, you're so aggressive and you just, you know, you're so intense and 
you know, you, you come across real strong and sometimes kind of angry. No, I'm passionate. And I don't know why other people aren't. I don't think I'm the, the odd one. I think most people who aren't passionate about God is odd. If you're not passionate about Jesus, I do, I think that you're odd. How in the world can you sit down and have someone completely pay your sin debt on Calvary when you cannot offer them anything whatsoever and say that they love you enough that they're not only going to pay your sin debt, but they're going to give you an opportunity to be saved and be indwelled with a God of the universe And oh, by the way, not only am I going to indwell you with the Holy Spirit and let you have a deep, intimate, personal relationship with the God who spoke everything into nothing and nothing had to move. I'm also going to go prepare a place for you and I'm going to spend all eternity with you because I love you that much. If you can't be passionate about serving Jesus when you sit down and think about that, then I'm telling you, is your heart even beating? See, that's the way I look at things. I have no idea how you can sit down and tell me that you're a Christian and yet it's hard for you to get passionate about serving Jesus. I'll take it a step further. If you're passionate about serving Jesus, you don't have to get up in the morning and look for ways to serve Him. You just already know they're going to happen throughout the day. If you're passionate about loving and serving Jesus... You're not going to have to worry about trying to find gospel opportunities because they're going to be all over the place. What I'm saying is this, if you're passionate about serving God and you have Jesus living in your heart because you've truly been saved and you are a Christ follower, you just wake up in the morning and know that you get the greatest privilege in the world and that's to serve others and be the hands and feet of Jesus and make the gospel known. And that's your number one goal. You're not trying to do it. It just happens. Why? I'm not going to say that I coined this phrase, but this is something that I've said for years and I tell people all the time. Ministry is the overflow of what God's already doing in your life. And the reason why most people can't do ministry is because God's not overflowing in their life. You know why? Because they're not emptying themselves out. The reason as James is saying here that they're not having works that show that they're saved is because they ain't the, the, the thought of others is not their number one priority. They're not emptying themselves out in order to be filled up with Jesus. See, here's the thing. If, if your cup is so full of you, you can't be filled with Jesus. You've got to empty your cup out. Oh, what did Jesus say? I think we quoted it already. Jesus said, you must deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. See, you got to wake up each morning and you got to empty you of you in order to be filled with Him. And when you're filled with Him, then He's going to overflow you. And the overflow of Him in you is the ministry that you do throughout the day. And you just spill out all over everybody. And your cup is emptied out by the time the day's over with and you've got to be filled up with Jesus again the next morning. But you also got to make sure that you're emptied of you. Because you know what? I don't want to do any works for anybody. I'm selfish. I 
can look at people and say, you know what? I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to serve you. You made bad decisions. I'm not going to give you a $20 bill to help you out because you made bad decisions. That's what I'll do. But if I'm emptied of myself and I'm filled with Jesus and I'm overflowing, the first thing I'm going to do is I don't even, this money is not even mine anyway. Everything I have, Jesus blessed me with. I don't own anything. And oh, by the way, what I do own is stored up in heaven because the Bible says to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So I'm not storing anything up here. I'm not trying to hold on to anything here. And so what I find is the only way that I'm going to be able to do work, if you will, for the Lord, is that I've got to be filled with Him. And I can only be filled with Him whenever I empty myself of me. But that only happens if I'm a true, genuine Christ follower because every morning, I'm going to tell you, every morning I wake up, I don't get excited and say, boy, I tell you, I cannot wait to deny myself this morning. No, it's hard. There's certain mornings I wake up and I'm like, you know what? I don't want to do this today. I'm just not in the mood. But it's not about me. See, that's that's the difference between a Christian and a Christ follower. A Christian, too often they make it about them. A Christ follower realizes, you know what? It's not about me at all. I'm going to ask you this question. We're going to end with this If you were to go to a court of law today and be accused of being a Christ follower, is there enough evidence to prove you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt today? That's what I hope. But I have good news if not. Jesus loved you enough to die on a cross for your sins, pay your sin debt, so that you no longer have to be dead in your sins, but you can be made alive in Christ. And that happens through understanding you're a sinner, repenting of your sins, and trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And that means you're not going to try to live the Christian life, but every single day you're going to wake up and you're going to surrender your life to Jesus and say, Lord, I can't do it, but you can do it through me today. And you're going to live in a way that you're going to let the ministry that God is doing in your life be an overflow to everybody around you. And you're going to find that when you get around people, they're going to accuse you of being a Christian. And that's a great thing. So I encourage you, send me a message. Come talk to me. Find somebody you know is a Bible-believing Christian and talk to them today about what it means to be saved. If this has been a blessing and a challenge to you today, I pray that you share it with somebody. Share the link with them. Encourage you to get on whatever platform you're listening to. Give it a five-star rating and write a review on it so it'll get out there. Also, if you're looking for some reading material, I encourage you to Check out the book that I wrote, The Reality of the Enemy, talking about spiritual warfare so it can help you to be able to better understand how to be a Christ follower so you can understand the tactics of the enemy so that way you can be able to look out for him and surrender those over to the Lord. I pray this finds you having a blessed day. I pray that this challenges you throughout the day to really sit down and watch and look at your life. And most of all, I pray that If you have questions about whether or not you're truly saved, that you'll go ask somebody today. I also encourage you, go somewhere this weekend to a good Bible-believing church. Get involved. Go serve. And let Jesus live out through you. Look forward to our next time as we get in.
to our study in the book of James. Thank you.